0: If you would like to buy your own copy of your Bosses and Algorithm, go to the Bloomsbury website and use code POD35 followed by your respective country code USUKCAAU depending on where you're located. Antonio Aloisi is Marie Sklodowska-Curie Fellow and Assistant Professor of European and Comparative Labour Law at IE Law School in Madrid, Spain. And Valeria Stefano is Assistant Professor with tenure at Osgold Hall Law School, York University in Toronto, Canada. Together, they are the authors of Your Boss is an Algorithm. In part two of this episode, we discuss how to address the pervasive power of AI-enabled monitoring, the likelihood that the gig economy model will emerge as a new organisational paradigm, and what social partners and political players can do to adopt effective regulations that protect workers, and even what a future without work could look like. Take a listen. about that about how even though there's an increasing amount of like surveillance especially for certain classes of workers there's also within many of the same sort of classes delivery people but also food delivery as well there's an increasing sort of tendency by those companies to basically treat them as contractors as you know as you say non-standard workers i just want to know like What do you think is the likelihood of that kind of unstable, like gig economy model? You know, it's already like incredibly prevalent, but how much more likely do you think it's going to emerge as like a sort of organizational paradigm across like more sectors?
1: Yeah, this is a wonderful question because as we claim in the book, the gig economy platform work can be seen as a self-fulfilling prophecy. In a sense, it is so seductive that the contagion uh, caused by this new business model could be spreading all over the labour market. What do we mean about gig economy? Actually, we started focusing on this emerging phenomenon back in 2013-14, and at the moment, it was everything about the possibility of uberizing the labour market, of shifting from stable and better regulating relationship to no standard and relationship based on this commercial transaction. So the idea of aiding a vertically integrated business based on employment relationship, cost, obligations, responsibility was Totally outdated. And everything was about the rise of the so called sharing economy, the collaborative economy. There was this ethos offering the opportunity of monetizing resources. Now, this gospel has been strongly demystified in the last years to the point that several rule makers including European institutions have stepped in to regulate or even better to adapt and to enforce existing regulation to these disruptive business model. But the underlying conditions of possibility of the gig economy, in our opinion, are here to stay. Back in 2014, many commentators used to say that we were experiencing a novel form of work. It was a novel at all, because if we look at the activities that are performed, they are as traditional as paid labour in the global economy, cleaning services care duties, logistics, delivery, or even professional freelancing from legal services to proofreading to whatever that is connected to some activities that can be carried out remotely. But the model, the, let's say, stereotype of this model that is based on the partial application or the total misapplication of labour regulation is so fascinating because it allows many companies to base their competitive advantage on the avoidance of costs and obligations that are normally paid by employers. The gig economy, in our opinion, is a global phenomenon that has two main aspects, work that is performed on location, and we are all familiar with the conditions of riders and couriers, in our cities, including during the pandemic. And another more evening part of the gig economy that is the so-called micro-work. Several activities that are now outsourced mostly to the global south, where working conditions are very poor and the remuneration are virtually non-existent. This model is in a way very seductive, as I said before, and many companies are starting to switch to what we call this kind of contractual distancing approaches where workers are not hired as full-time, open-ended employees. And on the other side, they are contractualized as independent contractors. On top of these. The traditional managerial prerogatives in terms of organizing the performance, monitoring it, and even disciplining workers are there. So the model is based on rather solid powers and liquid responsibility. This is the underlying contradiction. This is the hypocrisy of the gig economy. On the one side, several companies are trying to better on the possibility of dismantling labor regulation and social security. On the other side, they are very prone to exercise some kind of powers that have been traditionally attributed to employers without paying for the attendant costs and obligation. Now, the future of the economy is somehow bleak, not only because several commentators, but also the large part has started to realize these several tropes that have been used. The most prominent one is based on this alleged flexibility of workers that can decide whether to turn on or off the hub and to engage with the task when they have idle time. But all over the world, we are having several interventions from the EU institutions, for instance, but also in USA, in California, in Latin America, because of the precarious working conditions that are representing a threat to the stability of our social fabric. Back in December 2021, with a very ambitious move, the Commission proposed a new directive that is based on two important pillars. The first one is the introduction of a presumption of employment for some platform workers when the platform is exercising a control over the performance, which is globally recognized as a symptom of the existence of an employment relationship. The second pillar is the regulation of algorithmic management. This is not a platform-specific problem, but the gig economy has been the cradle of these new functions from hiring to firing that are totally or partially executed by software and computers. So the gig economy is a model that could be spreading all over the labor market precisely because it is as old as the labor market and it is also building on some underlying trends, for instance, precarization, flexibilization and also on some customer and generational preferences.
2: Certainly, the gig economy—the future of it—looks very bleak. I think it's uh, particularly insidious when you live in a country without universal health care. Love a company that refuses to pay its employees benefits and give them health care, <laughs> but I think the traditional association with the gig economy is companies like Uber or Postmates or these kind of frontline essential workers that we were talking about. But I think, as you were saying, it's taken hold over our entire labor force. For us, it's... Freelance editing and media, what we could call the substactification of journalism, where everything is risk free or it's based on what's clickable and doesn't have any kind of oversight. It's about profit making. It's not, you know, about giving their laborers the dignity that they deserve in their work. Clearly, if this is the direction that we're all headed towards in our labor force, it seems like we need some kind of legislative interference if we are to combat the kind of insidious consequences of having a work model like this. What do you think that we, so this is a twofold question, but like, what can we as social actors do, but what can political players also do to adopt effective regulation? Is there anything that we can essentially do to combat the progressive trend of the gig economy?
3: Well, in terms of both policymakers and if you want, what you can do to prompt policymakers to act. In the book, we discuss basically the idea of dispensing with this employment, self-employment status. This is an idea that originally was proposed by two UK-based professors, Nicola Contouris and Mark Friedland. They proposed to switch from the Employment, self employment idea to the personal work idea. So basically, you will be covered by employment and labor protection if you work personally and basically you were not conducting a business on your own account, a genuine business on your own account. So that doesn't mean that if you own the bike that you ride as a Fedora rider, you are not a genuine business. You really need to have meaningful client portfolio and and a real organization behind yourself, otherwise you will be covered by employment and labor legislation as if you were an employee. Why is that? Because it has become far too easy for platforms, but in general, employer, I mean, misclassification is not just driven by platforms, to basically adopt some cosmetics in your contract to make you an independent contractor or to pretend that you are an independent contractor. And then if you want to challenge that, you need to call the court. It's expensive, takes a lot of time, maybe it doesn't pay off because the court can give too much weight on what it's basically written on your contract. So the idea is employment and self-employment are categories that are now becoming less and less meaningful. And particularly self-employment has become this most category that puts together the partner of a huge law firm and Uber driver. It doesn't make sense to have any category like that. It's completely meaningless. So we think that this is one of the things that should be done when we talk about the coverage of labor protection. When it comes to how to react to these forms of technology, I mean, the answer is, of course, different from place to place because Europe has a different labor market than the United States, for instance. In Europe, we think that it's essential to involve the unions and the social partners, the works councils that are present are much more present in the European society uh, than in the US, for instance, or the UK for the matters to regulate at the workplace the introduction and the use of technology. So we call for negotiating the algorithm. What does it mean? It means that whenever you apply an algorithm that wants to take decision on people and has implication on what people do and, and basically their lives and how they work, this should not come like from the top down you should have a negotiation because this has huge implications on your lives. And we have adopted this model for technology in the past, from some technologies in the past in Europe, and that has not hampered business innovation. It has not hampered the productivity, competitiveness. So it's a trope that if you want to re- better regulate these things, that has the trade-off of basically hampering growth and innovation. It's basically just dispensed. It's a myth that has been debunked by reality. When it comes to the United States, I think you cannot just rely on collective bargaining. Of course, you should rely on collective bargaining whenever that's possible, but you should also have some regulatory uh, regulatory authority that vets. Algorithms before they are introduced in the labor markets. Uh, this is something that other people in the United States have proposed. If Oma Junwa, who's a professor of labor law in the United States, has proposed, I mean, we can do it only with. Collective bargaining in the U.S., we need the authority to step in. You cannot just have the antitrust authority doing this job. You need to involve a specific regulatory authority. On top of that, in our opinion, whenever the unions are available and whenever they are present, they should also be involved.
2: What happens if your regulatory body is just a total mess right now? (laughs) What if you don't live in a functioning democracy anymore?
3: Yeah, I, I completely see your point, but the point is... United States has this idea that is a country that is based on liberty, okay? Liberty should not stop at the office door, okay? The idea that basically you are the freest nation in the world, but somehow whenever you walk in a workplace, you become some sort of prisoner of a private authority, in my opinion, it's completely against the liberty and freedom idea that is at the base of the U.S. society. So it's a matter of democracy. It's not some weird socialist agenda. It's really a matter of democracy. Nothing more than that. I am a citizen and I don't stop being a citizen when I walk the doors of my office. That should be the bottom line, in my opinion.
2: I agree with you. I think when you look into it, there's actually a lot of ironies of American freedom and freedom of choice, when you really investigate it, actually looks like a very constrictive, oppressive life, really, for a lot of people if you don't have money, essentially. It's um, the logic of freedom in this country doesn't really apply to people who are not of the protected classes. I could go down that rant. I'm not going to. Another thing that I was just thinking of, you were talking about collective bargaining and just the legacy of Unions in Europe and just labor rights in general, I think it's hard to talk about the legislative regulatory landscape on such a global scale. But something that's happening here is we're experiencing one of the greatest labor movements in our country. We haven't had this many public union movements happening since the early 20th century. So I am curious to see if, you know, all these Starbucks locations, for example, and Amazon, like if they will especially Amazon, I wonder if in their collective bargaining units they, or if they haven't already talked about the kind of surveillance that happens in their factories. It'll be really interesting to see how that unfolds.
3: Yeah, I think that is precisely why all these companies are doing whatever they can to stop unionization because they know that once unions are there, they need to have a discussion on all these forms of surveillance and management. And it's precisely what they don't want to do. So it's not just because they don't want to raise wages or better working time. They don't want to give up a substantial chunk of power that employers have gained in the last few decades, and they don't want to basically relinquish. In my opinion, the amount of power that employers have in our societies at the moment is not fully compatible with a functioning democracy. So it's something that should be addressed as a problem of rule of law and and democracy rather than anything else.
0: Let's end with like a big question, but I'm sure it's something that you two have thought about. And it's something that like, obviously we both have thought about as well in relation to like work and what we want work to be like. What does a future without work look like? That's something that I think you've said in the book is it's not new, you know, like in the seventies people were talking about, blue collar workers being replaced by, you know, robots, automation, etc. And now it's become something that people are realising could possibly happen to white collar workers, office workers. So what do you think a future without work could look like potentially, and not just with regard to automation, but otherwise? And has it been reconceptualized over time?
1: We start the book by discussing uh, the substance of this narrative about a potential future without work, a workless society. When it comes to understanding the prospect of the world of work, probably we should be looking backwards in order to understand whether from the vantage point of our reality, we can assess this kind of metrics and data that are proposed to understand whether jobs are going to disappear. Now, we also should be considering a kind of evolutionary trajectory in the understanding of the relationship between automation and the reduction in employment and the future work. In the past, the introduction of technology was considered a way to free energies, to emancipate work. So full automation was looked at as a promise of, possibilities of conducting meaningful, fulfilling activities instead of spending so much energy over meaningless tasks imposed by employers, bosses, principals, or even clients. Now, in the last years, uh, while we've been so much discussing about uh, the fourth industrial revolution, we have also learned that robots are here to steal our jobs. Now, I'm going to say in a moment that this narrative is totally flawed and several economists, including David Autor, have demystified this kind of Robopocalypse narrative precisely because technology cannot displace occupations, cannot displace jobs. It can only displace single task single activities. And according to the most reliable and accountable studies, we are here to discuss about a routine bias transformation of the labor market. Repetitive activities, those activities that are so routine, that can be taught, that can be programmed to be conducted by a technology, whether it is a physical robot or an algorithm, a software will be destroyed by technology. The OECD, the Organization for the Economic Cooperation and Development, has told us that only 9% of jobs will face destruction. But on the other side, almost 40% of current jobs will experience a change, a transformation that is not only due to the ongoing digital transformation. There are so many factors that are somehow neglected. Climate change, the unsustainability of the social fabric, health emergency, demographic changes, migrations, all these trends will change the work. And technology is only one of the drivers of the transformation. Now, while we in a sense, accept that technology is not destroying labour. We should also be considering that this excuse, this kind of take it or leave it posture, has been used to promote a kind of chilling effect when it comes to contesting some kind of practices. So, in uh, today's workplace, instead of having jobs replaced by technology, we see workers working alongside robots and technologies and actually working at the rhythm of technology and robots and algorithms. This is why the narrative of a potential future without work is exercising a strain on the value and availability of labor. And this is somehow uh, very worrisome, in a sense, because this results in a slow, gradual, downward pressure on the quality of job. In our book, as said before, by uh, Valerio, we try to switch from an approach that is based on a quantitative analysis of the labour market, how many jobs are created, how many jobs are going to disappear, to an analysis that is driven by the focus on the quality of jobs that are available. And by quality, we mean a combination of terms and condition, professionalism, self-determination, agency, and the relational aspect of jobs. So while economists are busy explaining us that the lamp of labor is a fallacy that only repetitive tasks, also repetitive tasks in cognitive activities and not only manual activities, are going to be impacted by this profound automation of the labor market, we ask for for a change, not only in the narrative, but only in the understanding and therefore in the global conversation. We should be looking at the quality of jobs. We should be wondering whether these jobs that are also created, transformed, displaced by technology are worth executing, whether they are fulfilling and whether they are decent.
2: Yeah, I think you brought up a really important point that it's not just the advent of technology that will shape how our work looks in the future, but just all of the sort multi-layered conflicts that we're dealing with right now, like climate change. I mean, it is incredibly bizarre to keep your head down at your little computer job during a mass extinction event, right? Like, it's just this cognitive dissonance that we're all dealing with and... I myself have been thinking, at what point are we going to divert from this 19th century industrial-revolutional model of work? Big rhetorical question, but I'm wondering, Valerio, if you have any final thoughts about, with all that we've been talking about, what the future of work might look like to you?
3: Well, the future of work will look like what we do of it. The future of work is not something that is a deterministic thing that just will happen as if it was climate change. That will happen. That is happening. The future work is basically a human endeavor. It's human activity. We have the power to shape it much more than we have the power to basically fix what we have uh, destroyed with the environment. That means that what we need to do is not to fall into the fallacy that is only in the hands of the few tech behemoths that are out there and they will decide for us. This is something that has to do with our lives and we have to take ownership of that and we have to challenge what comes from the tech industry to make sure that technology serves us rather than the other way around. And we can do that. Mm-hmm. We have done that in the past. There's no reason to believe that we cannot do it now. The only thing is we cannot fall into the idea that there's nothing to do because if you fall into that, you don't have agency. There's much we can do and there's much we can stop and basically reframe and re-engineer to serve us rather than tech itself.
2: Well, I think that that's a very profound place to end on. have both given us a lot to think about. So I just want to thank you again for being on our show. For everybody that's listening, you should look up your bosses and algorithm. We'll include it in our show notes. Thanks again for such a great show. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you both.